you, worship team. Uh, children being dismissed. Uh, the rest of us, if you'll have your Bible, join me. Matthew chapter 27 this morning. Matthew 27. Uh, just a lot going on this week. Uh, thank you, uh, Brother Mike, for pointing our attention to the psalm and in relating that with uh, the court's decision this week with uh, Roe versus Wade. And uh, we do need to pray. There's lots of layers to that. Um, there's some confused people and there's some blinded people and there's some bloodthirsty people in our country. And uh, they're really angry today and that's all right. Uh, when the wicked are angry, it means something good probably happened. And um, so we're thankful to the Lord for what he has done. We do want to pray that families, that husbands and wives will see that God's sovereign decision to give them a child is a gift. Is a gift. We need that to come back to our land. Um, and we need a lot of sin to stop those that, I'm just going to be blunt, those that are not husbands and wives and have been relying on a safety net need to stop fornicating. That needs to happen. Let's be blunt. Uh, but has been challenged to us. Uh, we are going to need to be aware and, and sensitive to what the Lord's will is uh, for us moving forward. Uh, praise the Lord for Justice Thomas and those others that joined with him as he kind of seems to have spearheaded that. Praise the Lord for him and the others. Um, there is a, maybe a little hope for our country. Let's keep praying. Um, Matthew 27. Uh, nobody's ever worthy to stand and teach the Bible or to preach. You're just not. And I'm not real sure why the Lord chooses to use people. I guess he does so so that he gets all the credit for anything as it comes to us, because this book is spiritual and we're earthly, and we're not going to understand it. Um, but I tell you what, if there was ever a passage that, that this guy is not worthy to even try to teach, I mean, if I was going to skip, you know, a lot of preachers like to skip things, you'd say, you'd never skip this. Well, I might would rather let, let somebody else preach on that, because I am, I'm just not, I don't, just don't feel like the guy to even try to preach on this, and Here's the difficulty. Uh, you guys already know the punchline. You know uh, what's, what we're about to read. Most of you know it right well. And you may be really used to it. And that's really sad on our part if this does not move us today. So I want to invite you. If you haven't prayed already, uh, you ought to be praying right now and continuously pray. Lord, just let the reading of your word affect my heart. Uh, and let my mind go where it ought to go, and if Jeff goes in a direction that we really don't need to go, let my mind not go there, but if it is, that you would, Lord, just use this whole morning, this message, this text, uh, to give us a fresh perspective on what has brought about the truth of the songs that we've been singing. A lot of that uh, has played into where we'll finish this morning. I think I'm going to be the most brief on review as I've been in a while. Here's the scene. It's Passover week. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane after agonizingly surrendering to the Lord's will. He has surrendered. They arrest him. The Jews in three phases, the Jewish leaders, have found him wrongfully, but in their view, guilty of blasphemy. They have then taken him over to the governor, Pontius Pilate, and there was three phases of the Roman trial because they need him to put Jesus to death. They don't have that authority. Pilate heard the three charges, different charges they brought against him. He found him not guilty and pronounced him so at least, I can defend at least five places 
in the time frame that Pilate declared him innocent, not guilty in some form or fashion, at least five times. And yet, as we've talked about, there was such a dynamic pressure politically. They had, they had the, the leverage over Pilate. And so he ends up giving in to their wishes. You remember, he tried three things. Maybe Herod will handle Jesus' case. He, he tried to throw it off on Herod. That didn't work. Then there was this am, amnesty custom to where every year at the Passover, a criminal, a prisoner is going to go free. And he tried to use that as a way to release Jesus. But the crowd chose their most notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. Then he tried his last major attempt was to have Jesus beaten so badly that he would bring him back out to the crowds. And they would see how he's barely alive. And then surely they would ask for, for him not to be crucified. But the Jewish leaders had corrupted the crowd and they are still, in spite of what they're looking at, a bloody mess of Christ. They still cry out for him to be crucified. And so that brings us up to where we're at. Look at verse 32. We're only going to cover about seven verses this morning, Lord willing. Look at verse 32 of Matthew 27. So he's made his decision. He's going to let Jesus be crucified by the Romans, but at the instigation of the Jewish leaders and the mob. As they went out, so now it's the journey toward the cross. Really, we've been on this journey toward the cross, but this is its final phase. Verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa, what we call modern-day Libya. There was a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Simon is a popular Jewish name at this time. Cyrene was a city that was known to have a Jewish population. So he's in Israel for the Passover. They compel, and I want you to notice the whole tone. I didn't catch this till this morning. The whole tone, the way this is written, and all the Gospels do the same thing. It is very strange to me how leading up to verse 35, the whole way this is written is a different perspective than I would have thought. The Lord has sovereignly chosen for these writers, in this case, seven verses, Matthew is going to use the word they and them ten times. He and him ten times. But the whole perspective, guys, is, is really what they're doing to him. He's receiving their doing. He's going to, in the coming week or two, we're going to see some things that the Lord is doing or saying. But for today, it's all this perspective, they do this. 32 again, as they went out, they found, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. They compelled. There's some lessons there, and I hope we'll get them in a few moments. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Golgotha, place of a skull. Why is it called that? I've never been to Israel myself. I know some of you have. It could be called place of a skull because that's where many people died. This was the chosen place for this event, crucifixions, possibly. But it is also pretty good, most people believe, it's because there's a rock formation that is there that because of some holes that are dug into, just, I guess, weather and the way that it's a very layered stone, they're kind of dug out and you can almost see kind of eyes, especially at certain shadowy times of the day. There's like these eyes and then below there's almost like this nostril of a skull that is below that. I've not been there. I pulled up a video yesterday and just watched a little bit. If you've, those of you have been there recently, I'm assuming this is still that way. There is now a bus stop. 
a bus station that is at Golgotha. In other words, if Golgotha is, is kind of this, I'm going to assume about 30, 40 feet high, little rock formation. If Christ was crucified down here, and if this was about twice that height with this rock formation, this cut-in section of this looks like eyes and a nose, then literally about where I'm standing today, there are dozens and dozens of buses just coming right by going into a bus station. This is where it all happened. That just seems so strange to me. Yet, verse 33 again, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, we're going to have a lesson out of verse 34 as well. We're going to camp there for a little bit, so kind of let it get in. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. Mark says wine mixed with myrrh. We'll talk about what's implied by gall there. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he tasted it. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Jesus would not drink it. 35. The crux of the text. And when they had crucified him. Did you see that? Did y'all just catch that? That's it. Six words. And Matthew gives the most words to it. Mark, Luke, and John give it four words. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him... They divided his garments among them by casting lots. They divide his garments. That'd be the Roman soldiers. They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That's the charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and one on the left. I, this struck me this week because I always try to read each of the Gospels that match what, where I'm at. All four. And all four Gospels rarely cover the same things. This really struck me and I still don't have a full grasp on it. Every one of them make a note that one is on the right, one is on the left. I think three do that. And one says Jesus is in the middle. So it, the, the Bible makes a point that Jesus is crucified between two robbers. And he's in the middle of all of that. So we've got two main ideas we want to cover this morning. And again, you are still praying. Because I am not going to be able to produce what needs to happen in us today. I don't have it. So you need to be praying. Lord, show me to help me see what you want me to see this morning from our text. Notice with me, number one, in the first two verses. Jesus says, and I'm going to invite you to add a word that I should have put in there. Jesus' final journey to Golgotha. If you want to add the word final, I think that would be proper. Should have put it in there. Jesus' final journey to Golgotha is verse 32 and 33. Verse 32, as they went out, so the decision is made. Christ is going to be executed. He's going to be crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Serene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha. So we're now on the final journey. I'll offer in a moment maybe about how long that journey was. But let's begin here. Executions in our country today are very private. I didn't live then, nor did you, but apparently like 150, 200 years ago, firing squads and especially hangings were very public. Well, they don't do that now. Executions happen, I think, usually at the prison where the person is being kept. 
We don't have a whole lot of executions, but when they are, they're behind the scenes. They're private. Medical examiners, experts are there, and we're told that the deed is done. That's not the case in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, executions were very public because, as the case would be with any execution, in their mind, it especially serves two, maybe even equal, purposes. Obviously, number one, we're going to punish the criminal for breaking the law. They're going to punish the criminal. But they want them to be very public because they also want to deter other people from even thinking about breaking Roman law. So in the Roman mind, the more public the execution, the better the execution. We're going to make it extremely public. So that's very different than what we have. So here's what that leads to. In Jesus' day, he and these other two men are going to literally, this is how they did it. If you're going to be executed, it was, if you did a, a bad enough crime, then you're going to be executed by way of crucifixion. You are going to carry your death instrument through the streets of your city. Jerusalem being a holy city, they demand, and the Romans oblige, that this, these executions have to happen outside of the city. And so here goes the Lord Jesus Carrying his own cross. And I know what Matthew says here in verse number 32, but we'll allude to John in a moment. Now think about this. They're sending a message. If you oppose Rome, here's what's going to happen. And so here goes the Lord and these other two men, and the streets are lined, and the other gospels tell us there's large crowds of people, and there's a group of women. We don't know if they're professional hired, weeping and wailing women, but the Lord turns and tells them, don't weep for me. You ought to weep for yourselves because something is coming. The Lord is going to bring some judgment on the city of Jerusalem, and they're weeping for him. Maybe they're heartfelt, sincere, just spontaneous, or again, maybe they are professional wailers that were hired for this purpose. But this, the Lord is going through the streets of Jerusalem. About how far? Probably the guess is one of the following. If Pilate had used Herod's former palace, Herod the Great's former palace, if, if Pilate used that as his headquarters, we're talking about a half of a mile distance. If it was Fort Antonia, which was beside the temple, then the distance to where he's going to be crucified is about a mile, so about twice that distance. Think of that, knowing what we learned last week of all the scourging and all that has been done to the back of the Lord and the other two men, to here now have to carry your cross. So you have the weight of this and you have the rough cut wood. I don't know what would be the strategy if that was me. I don't know if they tied this to the person or if they just have to carry it this way or that way. I don't know if it's just the cross beam that is the cross or is it the, the vertical and the horizontal beam. I don't know. But either way, the Lord is now in, in task with this job to carry his cross through the, through the streets of Jerusalem. And please don't discount this. There's not only the weight and the pain, but there is massive amounts of humiliation and shame. When you, if you were to see me in an orange jumpsuit with handcuffs, your first thought would be, what did he do? You would assume guilt. When these guys are coming through the streets carrying their cross, there's an automatic assumption. What have they done? What has he done? That's the guy that was just teaching in the temple. What has he done to warrant being executed? Now he's going to be crucified. There's an assumption and a shame that goes with it of guilt. John tells us in chapter 19 verse 17 that Jesus actually starts carrying his own cross. Then verse 32 of Matthew is going to take place. So what happens? Why does Simon have to come in and help carry the cross? Apparently, all I'm going to offer, it seems very logical, 
one of two things is happening. Jesus is not moving fast enough. So picture this. We're just saying about he's the enthroned king. The, the person, the specific person who spoke the worlds into existence and who by the word of his power even then was holding all things together is not able, not being rebellious, he's not able to move fast enough carrying his cross. I'm picture, if that's the case, I'm picturing these Roman soldiers screaming at him, yelling at him. They probably have their own shorter version of a whip, lashing him more, but it's not doing any good. It's not going to make him suddenly more powerful and able to carry this any faster. The other option is he just carried it for a while, and probably the way it is worded, Simon is coming from out of the country in, and Jesus and his are going out. And so some believe that he made it about to the gate of the city, and that's where he just couldn't carry it anymore. Could I remind you why the Lord couldn't carry his cross anymore, or why he would have been so? He starts out carrying it, so why can't he carry it? Maybe he was weak. No, 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 no. Put that out of your mind. Jesus is not weaker than these other two men. Jesus could carry this cross, but the list I'm about to remind you of, only one of them would be true of these other two men. And maybe they needed help as well. Remember that he had not slept the whole previous night. They would have had opportunity to do that. This is probably the next biggest, the, the, the biggest thing that I would say. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was under such anguish spiritually, he told his disciples that he's at the point of death. So he's already almost died in the night. He's praying so fervently, he is literally sweating on a cold night, such that his sweat became, as it were, drops of blood. So he's losing lots, he has no sleep, lots of fluid sweating. Apparently the wording allows for lots of blood coming out as the sweat turns to blood. So he's losing bodily fluids, and he had the Passover meal and the wine at the Passover meal, but nothing else is going in. Then you add to that, in the Jewish trial, after the second phase of that, they end up just pummeling and beating him and open hand slapping him. So the other guys did not go through that. Then you add to that the scourging, which they would have had, but I believe Jesus' scourging would have been even worse because Pilate wants to make it really bad because he needs it to stir up pity in the Jews. And then you have the crown of thorns that is making massive amounts of bodily fluid. So he's, his sweat is gone. His blood is all gone. He's totally weak. And now they're telling him, carry his cross for a half a mile or a mile. And it just wasn't happening. Look at verse 32 again. And as they went out, they found a man of Serene, Simon by name. And they compelled. Matthew and Mark used the word compelled. I think one of the other writers uses the word forced. Uh, maybe John uses the word seized. So here's what we need to understand. Simon is coming into the city of Jerusalem from out in the country. It is Passover week. He's going somewhere on purpose, apparently around 8.30, 8.40 in the morning, maybe 8.45. He's on a mission, and all of a sudden he's compelled, seized. Because they have the power to do that, they make him end up carrying the cross. Here's what that tells me. He didn't volunteer. He didn't come along. Hey, can I carry his cross for him? That's not what happened. They're forcing him to do this. This means he wouldn't have wanted to do it. We don't know a lot about Simon, but I'm using my imagination. Was he a regular at Passover? 
Maybe he only comes every few years to Passover. Could it be possible that this man had saved and saved his money in North Africa and finally this was a trip of a lifetime and maybe him and he takes his boys with him. Maybe his, his wife and daughters, who knows, but at least him and the boys and off we go. We're going to Jerusalem and here he comes in and he gets told, you have to carry this man's cross and now he knows I am going to be defiled for the rest of the Passover week because that's a death instrument that's used over and over and over and that has dead men's blood on it and that has this man's blood on it and now I'm going to have to carry a death, death, a death instrument. He doesn't want to carry this. This is defiling to him. It's the last thing he really would have wanted to do. And so they seize him and force him, compel him to carry the cross of the Lord and he does it because the Romans are in charge. But now I want to switch your mind just for a moment. Did you notice the last few weeks as we've been talking, we know about Caiaphas and we know about Pilate, but we don't really have other people's names. Why is this man named? I want to flip over. I want you to listen to how Mark writes this. Mark said, now catch it. Mark, writing about 30-some years later, 30-some years later, writes his gospel, and he says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. To carry his cross. Did you catch it? Me, me, scrunch it down a little. And they compelled Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry. You don't give genealogies and descendants of just random people. Why did Mark include? Mark says, oh, by the way, he's the father of Alexander. You know he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Simon of Cyrene. You know Simon of Cyrene. What does this tell us? Church tradition, along with, if you want to write this down, the fact that the Gospels name Simon and name his two sons is a pretty strong indication that this man, who at first did not want to carry the Lord's cross, he actually ends up, he and his family become believers in Christ. And that is pretty reliable. I'm not going to say it's biblical, but traditional. Traditional um, history tells us that Simon and his family became Christians. And that's why Mark just says, that's, this is the father of Alexander and Rufus, as if they know who he's talking about. He assumes they know who he's talking about. Now, if that's the case, think about the ramifications of that. Here's this man who is not a Christian. There were not Christians at this time. Christians are followers of Christ. He hadn't died for sin. So you have followers of Christ, and now we're called Christians this man becomes a Christian, and in a non, very non-prideful way, he gets to live the rest of his life knowing, I didn't do it by my own will, but thankfully, by God's grace, he can take joy, a non-prideful joy in knowing when Jesus needed help and assistance and relief physically, God was able to use me to help Jesus out. So he gets to live with that awareness and that knowledge. A man named James Stalker writes in a way that points our mind to the hypothetical. I want you to think with me. What if Simon comes into Jerusalem just one hour earlier or one hour later? Just imagine. Let's say he doesn't come in at 8.40, 8.45 a.m. Let's say he comes into the city at 7.40, 7.45. He's on his way. I'm, again, I'm using my imagination. 
Perhaps he's headed to a certain spot. He's going to a street. It's very, very crowded, and there's a big raucous, and a bunch of people are calling for someone to be crucified. He's on a time frame, so he's just going to pick another street, and he finally gets to where he's going, totally misses that, but ends up hearing that the great healer, that apparently there's been a healer that's up in Galilee. He's from Africa, but there's this healer in Galilee, and he got killed this week, and he hears about that, and he goes back home, and no big deal. Maybe it comes an hour later, and the Lord is over there being crucified with two other people. And so people are standing around jeering and reviling and mocking, but he don't have time for that, so he just keeps going. And again, hears about the healer and the great teacher was put to death. Oh, yeah, I remember seeing that, but it doesn't impact his life. Stalker actually writes the following. Doubtless to Simon, this encounter seemed, catch this, at the moment seemed at the moment the most unfortunate incident that could have befallen him. Think about that. If you're him, I think Stalker's on to something. Doubtless to Simon, this encounter seemed at the moment the most unfortunate incident that could have befallen him. This is the last thing he wants. By the way, have you had a point in your life, maybe even recently, you're like, something has happened in my life. It's the last thing I would have wanted to happen. He calls it, for Simon, an interruption, an annoyance, and a humiliation. We're not told, but I'm picturing as Simon's going through the streets carrying this cross, everything in him. He probably doesn't do it, but he probably wants to tell it, this isn't mine. This is, I'm, just, I'm carrying it for this man. This isn't mine. I'm not, I'm not dying. I'm not a prisoner. Again, Stalker writes, it's an interruption an annoyance and a humiliation, not to mention a defilement, and yet he writes, yet it turned out to be the gateway of life. Can I sell you all on this thought? When it comes to Christians and those who will become Christians, nothing in your life happens by chance. Nothing. Even things that we would qualify as unfortunate interruptions, annoyances, humiliations, the last thing that we would want. But when it comes to that group of people, with God, nothing. I remember in 1979, I got invited to a Bible camp. It was not on my radar. My uncle talked to my parents. Somebody paid my way to go. That changed my whole life, and it has changed my eternity. I couldn't help but thinking about, I think it was last September, October, 16 of us went up and had a men's golf retreat, and we're at the lodge up in Cashers, North Carolina, and there's this man from Florida. And he's from Florida, and he comes up to North Carolina. And he's there in North Carolina because he has a family member, a loved one who's getting married. So he's driving from Florida to, to North Carolina for a wedding, and there's a two- or three-day event, got the rehearsal, and you got some other things overlapping. And so on that Thursday evening, he leaves one of the events of the wedding, Leaves his wife. He's going to go back and head on back to where they were. Takes a wrong turn or two. Ends up on this dirt road that goes in front of the lodge that we're staying at. And he realizes he's not where he's supposed to be. <clears throat> he's taking a wrong turn. Heads down another driveway that is extremely narrow. He's in this super cab F-150. He tries to turn around. Bad decision. Tries to turn around in the dark. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the whole rear wheels of his truck just literally bottom out. And the running boards of his truck just are buried on the road bond. So the running boards, I, don't even, I think he could open the truck. But man, it, this truck's going to probably be messed up. And it's, it's buried. 
And he sees some lights on over at this, which happened to be the lodge we're staying at, comes that evening after dark, knocks on the door, wants to know if any of us know anything about record services or anybody to contact. Total, you've got to be thinking in his mind, this is the worst thing that could possibly have happened. I'm up here from Florida. I'm supposed to be doing this. My truck may be ruined. What's going on? Ends up hanging out with us about an hour and a half, totally unplanned to him or us, but he hears the gospel. And in one night, that very night, same night he hears the gospel, puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The worst thing becomes the best thing. Nothing happens by chance. It is not an accident that you are right where you're at this morning. Why does God have you listening to this right now and looking at this? Number two, would you notice with me this morning, let's just call it, We could go many ways. Let's just call it the focal point of history. The focal point of history, verses 34. And really, this is the beginning. So we're not going to finish the focal point, but we're now going to enter the six hours that we're going to call the focal point of history. I told you there was a lesson in verse 34. And it's going to seem a little different compared to everything else that we're touching. But I I don't want to skip it. So notice verse 34. So they reached Golgotha, the place of the skull. Simon's help physically. Now they're there. They, again, the way it's written is a lot of what they are doing. They offered him, Jesus, wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So what Matthew calls wine mixed with gall, let me go ahead and say to the rest of our minds, is this wine mixed with bile. Isn't bile poisonous? The word here is obviously being used for bitterness. Wine mixed with something that is going to make it very bitter, bitter tasting. Again, Mark is going to call it wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh being used as a narcotic, being blended in with the wine. So I promise you this is not poison, but it is going to apparently make this wine have a bitter taste. The Romans would never poison one of their crucifixion victims because they want them to languish a long time on the cross. Anybody who's going to be crucified, if they were offered poison, if they have a lick of sense, they're going to welcome that and drink it to the full so they would die very quickly. That's not what's happening. So what is it? It's apparently some narcotic that would add a very bitter taste to it. So what's taking place? Some believe that this is just the Roman soldiers being mean again. And mocking, like, hey, what's this? Here's just some wine to drink, and they try, oh, this is nasty. That's, I don't believe that's the case. I believe the fuller version of this is what most people contend, is there was a tradition. So follow me. There was a tradition among the Jewish women, the wealthy women in Jerusalem. And it was done in the spirit of Proverbs 31. Say, Proverbs 31, that's the virtuous woman. Yes, but before that section, there's this other section where Solomon's mother is giving him advice. And, and, And I'll just refer to it. You can go home and read it today. But apparently, tradition says wealthy women, knowing that people were going to be executed, particularly crucified victims, they would make this concoction of wine with myrrh or whatever this would be that would make it bitter tasting, but it's going to deaden the senses. So it's going to deaden, not completely, and it is temporary. It is brief, but by deadening the senses, and I'm sure the Roman soldiers are thankful for this because it's going to make the person, if they'll drink it, a little desensitized. They're not going to feel everything that's happening for a moment, and they're going to be much more compliant at that nailing 
of the hands and feet process. And so they're allowing this. It appears these ladies make it in the spirit. You say, what was that Proverbs 31? Solomon's mother tells him that, listen, Solomon, do not give, called a Lemuel, that's the name he uses there, do not give your strength to women. And he says, as the king, you need to know that kings and rulers do not need to be, do not need to drink wine or strong drink. They need to be clear-headed. And then she says, but watch, give strong strong drink to those who are perishing and give wine to those who are having like deep, sorrowful distress of soul. So wine for them, strong drink for those that are perishing, but you don't get it. You're the king and the ruler and you need to stay clear-headed. And so here the Lord is offered this, and please remember what we just talked about. He's lost all these bodily fluids. He would be extremely thirsty at this point, probably ready to drink anything. It's not that a case of, oh, no, thanks, I'm not thirsty. Oh, that's nasty, I don't want it. When he realized what this was and the extent and the purpose of this, the Lord refused it. Write this down. When he was offered the wine mixed with Myrrh or gall, the Lord refused it. Why? It's pretty clear. As he's facing the cross, Jesus wants to be totally and completely clear-minded. It it really is this idea. As he's facing the penalty for sin, he wants to be clear-minded and he wants to feel everything that God has for him to feel. He wants to experience all of it as it is. Nothing for him is needed. He doesn't want it to be deadened in any way. He wants to experience the whole thing. Guards, he, he doesn't say it, but it's all over him. You don't need to worry about me. I'm not going to twist and fight you when it's time to pierce my hands and feet with nails. He would offer his right hand and offer his left hand and offer his feet. He would not fight like most people would. Surely the other two guys take advantage of such an offer, but Jesus does not. Why? Because I want to feel the full brunt of what is coming. There's two lessons. Lesson number one, and you may disagree with me, and I don't want to argue with you about it. I'll have my opinion. You have yours. I hope my kids remember this when I'm old. I don't think this is, okay, this is not a text to be used against painkillers. Some have actually apparently tried to do that. Jesus, when he was offered... He refused painkillers, and we as God's people, we need to refuse painkillers. No, remember and refer back to what Proverbs 31 talks about. So I'm going to offer to you that there is a time and a place for these. If you're going to have surgery, the surgeon wants to be able to do a good job without you twisting and screaming and hollering, and so they use anesthesia to put us to sleep on certain kinds of surgery. I'm actually having a tooth worked on tomorrow morning. I'm counting on the guy using some local anesthesia. Counting on it. If he offers, hey, I understand you're a Christian, you want to do the not, no, no, give me the stuff. I'm not a, I'm not a nutso. When you're dying, and it's possibly painful, God has graciously allowed mankind to learn how to harness and use, under the proper supervision and in the right amounts, medicines to help the dying this is what they're talking about for them it was strong drink we have other things available to us today in cases of extreme pain and even extreme sorrow that could be that so number one i would say don't use this text as a 
as a text to say any use of painkillers is wrong because Jesus refused it. But the last thing I want to point out before we go to verse 35 is this. We live in a day, so there's that, but now let's go to the other side, the balance of what I just said. We live in a day where a lot of people, even Christians, will turn to alcohol and drugs in all of its various forms, whether it be smoked, drank, swallowed, shot, snorted, you name it. Many people, we have an epidemic in our country of people who are turning to alcohol and various drugs because they're trying to deaden pain in their life that God is actually trying to use that pain to get their attention and to turn them to the Lord, but they're not feeling the pain because they just quickly run to alcohol and run to a drug to deaden the pain. And that's wrong. It's sin. It's artificially masking. I just said there is a time and a place for this, but there's a lot of people who are just very quick. They're just not feeling anything. They're not feeling what the Lord wants them to feel. Feel. Again, alcohol, drugs, but we do it in other ways. We'll turn to food. There's this pain in my life, so we just turn to food. There's this pain in my life. There it is flaring up. Quick, grab the credit card. Let's get on the computer, and let's go shopping and get those endorphins going because I don't want to think about this in my life. Or I have this in my life, and so I've got to stay so busy I never have time to think about that because if I ever have to think about that, then God's trying to get my attention. I've got to realize I've got to talk with God about that. So let's just constantly be masking it. We ought not do that. We ought not do that artificially and sinfully. Now we come to verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Can we call this the crux? Verse 35 is the crux. You say the crux of what? Everything. This is where you ought to be praying, because I'm, I'm telling you guys, I don't have the ability. You ought to pray right now. Lord, help me to understand the importance of what begins in verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. What you just read, what you just heard is the crux of the Bible. It's the crux of all of God's promises. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the single focal point in all of time and eternity. That's a big statement. I just made a big statement. Is that a ridiculous statement? Is there anything, is there any truth to that? I want to propose to you, go back in your mind before time began. Go back into eternity. It's eternity. It just keeps going. There's only God. When there was only God and the mind of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the mind and the counsel of God, God knew in eternity past that he would make this thing called creation, time and space and matter and, and beings, spiritual and physical. He knew that he would have, from eternity past, he knew that everything was pointing to this We've been going there for years. And then I would say, we're only months away from the cross. Hey, we're only weeks away. We're just a few days away. It's Tuesday. Friday's coming. Hey, it's just a few hours away. We're in the garden. We are now here. Everything from at the beginning of time, the prophecies and the symbols and the typology was pointing to verse 35. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and we keep looking back to verse 35. 
When we get to eternity, future, etern- when time is no more, we will still be looking back to this event. This is the key. This is the crux. This is the center of all time and eternity. This is the main event. Apparently the Persians invented crucifixion. The Carthaginians in northern Africa picked it up. And then the Roman Empire perfected it. I'll offer to you this morning that, now catch it, many men have been crucified on a cross. Many. So how many? You think thousands? I can safely tell you hundreds of thousands, but probably Millions of men have died on a cross. But this one crucifixion, not the other two, this one crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is the central event in all of history. Why? Listen to what Colossians chapter 2. I read it just the other day. I'm going to finish in Colossians. Listen to Colossians 2 verse 9. The Bible says, for in him Christ, this is a massive verse, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. Why is this one crucifixion out of millions the central event in all the history of the world and all of time and eternity? Because the man on this cross is God. That's what makes this one the crux, the central focal point of everything. As you make your way from there, write that note quickly. Hold your spot in Matthew 28. I do want to briefly, we could do this over and over. What we're about to do, we could do it again and again. Would you look over at John 19? Because as you're turning there, before I come back to the first part of verse 35, I want to then look just for a moment at the second part of verse 35, where the Bible says, when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. So here's what that tells me. They divided, so they first have to strip the Lord of his clothes. So this tells us something. They want their executions very public. You have to march through the streets carrying your death instrument. They want it on a public thoroughfare. And oh, by the way, you will die naked. So crucifixion victims died naked, died with it. Some proposed there was a loincloth, possibly, probably not. Because they end up now, they're going to divide his garments so crucifixion victims died, the Lord died naked. That is part of the cross. John chapter 19, look at verse 23. Let's look at John's version of what we just read in verse 35 of Matthew. John gives a little bit more information. John 19, look at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Did you catch that? We're catching clues. Now we know how many soldiers. I don't know if there's four soldiers for all three guys or is there four soldiers for Jesus and those guys have four. I don't know if there's 12 or if there's four, but now we know there's at least four. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. So there's part, part. And probably it was like this. Okay, there's the outer garment. There's his shoes, sandals. There's the girdle. And possibly there's the headpiece. Or is the fourth part, this is what I can't really tell, is the fourth part what's in the middle of verse 23? So they divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. So is it outer garment, shoes, girdle, and tunic? But what, notice what John writes. 
But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So no seams. Apparently this thing is worth more. It's more valuable. So they said to one another, Whoa, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. So they're each going to divide. There's four soldiers. I'll take that. I'll take that. Well, they all want, I want, I want the tunic. Now I want the tunic. You have the shoes. You got the, that last time. So here they are just bargaining among themselves. Verse 24, John says, So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, the tunic, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. John, very astutely under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, so now he's going to quote Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18. Look at, look at your Bible. They divided my garments. David wrote this. Never happened literally to David. It was a prophecy about his coming descendant. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So here's the question. As we would read that in, in time past, so which is it? Did they divide your garments or did they cast lots for your garments? And the answer is both. This prophecy has two parts. And so what happens here in Matthew 27, verse 35, and John 19, is they actually fulfill both parts of this prophecy by dividing his garments among them and then gambling for his garments. And the last part of the phrase says, so the soldiers did these things. If you want to picture it in your mind, it's as if the Lord is right here being crucified and three, five, seven feet away, they're down, he's listening, and they're down there. I get, the, I get the shoes. I want the tunic. No, let, hey, let's gamble. All right. First one, put your name. This is your mark. This is your side. This is your side, and this one's mine. First one gets the shoes, all right? And literally, he is up here dying for the sins of the world, and they're down there talking about who gets what of his clothes. This is how cruel mankind. He's up there suffocating and dying, and they're just worried about who gets what clothes. This is what we're capable of. Back to Matthew 27. Notice again verse 35. I alluded to this a while ago. I find this unusual. And yet this is exactly what the Lord does as he inspired the word of God in all four gospels. Again, I I told you a while ago, Matthew gives the longest version. The initial longest version. Look at verse 35 one more time. And now let's talk about those first six words. So they get there, they offer him something to drink, he refuses it. No, I want to be clear mind, I want to feel everything that I'm supposed to feel. And when they had crucified him, there you have it, that's it. And when they had crucified him, six words. Why? Why so much brevity? All I can think of is that it's understood. The Bible does not go through the exact process step by step. This happened, and then this arm, and then that arm, and this guy did this. And took. None of that is laid out. It's just all four Gospels. They crucified him, and it's understood. So all we have to fill in the blanks, which is reliable, we have reliable historical data of what the Romans did at crucifixions, and we have clues within the text. So this mind, I started putting what my mental model has always been in my life, and I started comparing to what's in the text. And this is what I've concluded on some of the clues. Have you ever heard, you ever seen pictures where some of the crucifixion victims have ropes around their arms? That always kind of offended me. But apparently sometimes the Romans would allow ropes to be on someone's arm just to to provide a little bit of extra support. 
And sometimes they wouldn't. You say, Jeff, do you think then Jesus, because the Bible never says that they drove the spikes in his hands. It's not spelled out. Do you think he actually, we know Jesus was crucified with nails driven into his hands and feet because one of his disciples named Thomas says, I'm not going to believe that he has come back to life from the dead unless I can place my finger in the holes in his hand, in the nail print. So we know he might have been also tied, but we know he was pierced in his hands and his feet with nails in fulfillment of Psalm 22. There were three shapes of crosses, three predominant, sometimes a cross, some were in an X shape. That'd be very effective. You think, well, you think Jesus was crucified on an X shaped cross. Some crosses were a capital T shape. Nowhere really for the head, but it doesn't matter. The head's probably going to go forward. And is that possible? Those are possible. But I think the traditional lowercase t model, because of what we see in verse 37, is the proper view because they have somewhere to nail this placard up over his head. So he is pierced, probably on a lowercase t looking cross, probably larger than what we see displayed in the baptistry this morning. Think about it. Roman executions could be one foot off the ground. They could be just barely off the ground, barely lifted. But there's a hint in verse number 48 that the Lord was lifted up to some degree, apparently some substantial degree, because they have to put a sponge on a reed to get it up to his mouth. They don't just come up and say, hey, here, you want this? Hey, you're a little taller, reach it over here. They don't do that. They have to put it on a reed. So that tells us he's being made a spectacle at a higher position. Here's what I don't. Again, I'm probably going to offend somebody just by even saying it's a possibility. Some propose that all they carried was the cross piece to the place of crucifixion, and then it is possible that the Lord was, his hands were nailed to the cross piece, and somehow the cross piece was lifted up, or the soldiers lifted just that, and then they set that in place, and the vertical piece is already in it. Maybe that seems like a whole lot more work to me. I believe that both the vertical piece and the cross piece were on the ground, and the Lord is then nailed to the, the, the vertical, the horizontal piece, and then his feet are nailed to the, ver, the, the, the vertical piece. And then obviously, if that is the case, that would have to be lifted up and then taken over into a hole. I don't know how gently, how much they care. That's going to have to be dropped into a hole that is sufficient to hold a taller and the weight of a human body. So we're not talking about something that's that tall. That would not work. You know that would not work. We're talking about something that's going to have to be dropped in, and that's probably where some dislocation of some bones would take place at that point. Either way, we don't know a lot of details. I looked out my office the other day, and I looked at a tree over here, and there's a tree trunk on one of our front trees that it would serve the purpose live you could take a man over there and pin his feet and an arm there and an arm there. Just get him up to that point where the branches kind of break off. It, it works all the same. J.C. Ryle writes the following of crucifixion. It was by design that the sufferer was not dying suddenly. Why? For no vital part of him was injured. You're not going to die because your hands are pierced. Not immediately, not for a long time. You're not going to die because your feet are pierced with a nail. So by design, they will not die suddenly because no vital part was injured. D.A. Carson writes the following. Hang with me. I know you see a note that's coming. But just hear the whole thing first. I actually had to look up a word that he wrote. 
Speaking of crucifixion, Carson writes, The victim endured countless paroxysms. Countless paroxysms. I thought I knew what that meant, but I needed to look it up. So here, listen. A paroxysm would be a sudden, extreme, violent attack of something. In this case, an attack of pain or urgency. Great distress. So paroxysm, sudden, extreme, attack. Now here's a quote. Carson writes that the victim of crucifixion endured countless paroxysms. As he pulled with his arms and pushed with his legs to keep his chest cavity open for breathing. That's, so a paroxysm hits, a sudden extreme attack. I want to breathe. And so they're going to pull and they're going to push. And they're going to get up there where their lungs can actually expand and bring air in. And then also have enough strength to kick the carbon monoxide. Dioxide. Which one is it? Dioxide. Thank you. Brother Kyle, and all the others of you who were like, really? He doesn't. Anyway, I study the Bible. <laughs> Back to his quote. The victim endured countless paroxysms as he pulled with his arms and pushed with his legs to keep his chest cavity open for breathing and then collapsed in exhaustion. You feel it? Everything's in them, using your muscles. You want to stay up here as long as you can, but it's super painful, and the muscles are getting tired, and so you go back down. And then they collapsed in exhaustion until the demand for oxygen demanded renewed paroxysms. And this just happens over and over. So you want to know, how does a person on a cross, if it's not, the, the, you, don't, you don't die from that. That's, that's just making sure that you'll die from these other things. And remember that the core of us, our brain and our core body, when, when we're old and we're dying, the blood's going to start coming back to the core because the body cares the most, the mind, the nervous system cares the most about these organs. And so as your mind is saying, I don't want to pull up on that because that hurts. And I don't want to push up on that because that hurts. But when your body, and you may even decide, I'm done, I'm tired, I'm just going to suffocate right here. No, you will not, because you have this will to live, and you have this survival instinct, and when that kicks in and your body says, I want oxygen, then it will override what the, what the arms are feeling and what the feet are feeling, and you'll start pulling and pushing, and you'll go up again, and you'll hang there as long as you can, just can't do it anymore. If you're taking notes, write the following. Carson writes that all this produced agony that could go on for days. Ending at last by suffocation, cardiac arrest, or loss of blood. That's how you die from crucifixion. Suffocation, cardiac... I've not had a cardiac arrest. Some of you have. I'm assuming when you felt that and it hit like, like, a, like a, literally a ton of bricks into your chest, your first reaction is to clutch with you know, like your arms. There's no doing that here. If you're dying of cardiac arrest, the, there it is. That one's about to die. Loss of blood, more than anything, suffocation. When finally the body says, I want oxygen, but literally the muscles just like, we're done. We, we can't do it anymore. And then you're doing those little guppy breaths until finally you die. And this is what Jesus did for us. I think every time recently since I've been here, six years ago, that I've come to this and I preach on the cross, I always include what Farrar wrote. 
I'll not belabor it. I've read it before. Some of you, this will be the first time you've heard it. Say, what would it be like to be on a cross? If you're taking notes, write this first one. It'll be a while before you have the second of his. For our rights, indeed, he studied it. Indeed, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of horrible and ghastly. Death by crucifixion. In other words, he said, I've studied it other ways to die. Death by crucifixion includes all that pain and death can have of horrible and ghastly. In other words, what kind of pain is that the world? You want horrible, ghastly pain? Crucifixion. Yeah, but what's like the most painful, horrible, ghastly way to die? Crucifixion is the way. He's going to nominate after that 12 symptoms, 12 things that happen to a person's body as they're dying, as we read a while ago, what could take for days that ultimately leads to the suffocation, cardiac arrest, and loss of blood that Carson wrote, Farrar writes the following 12 symptoms, and he did not write about bones being out of joint. So bones out of joint also, and you just, it's horrible pain, but when your body says, I need oxygen, you will, you will overcome that and fight against it, and you'll do what it takes as long as you can. Farrar writes the following. It includes any one of these would be a huge deal in our life. Dizziness. It's part of crucifixion. Cramp. I never get cramps. Last night, had one in this leg in the night. Now think about that. When Some of you, raise your hand if you've had a cramp in the last year in the night. I'm blessed. I hardly ever get these things. When that happens, what do you do? You point your feet, your toes back to you, right? You pull them back like that. Think about that. There's no doing that on this. Up and down and up and down. And they would, no doubt these soldiers sat there and looked, and a nasty knot is in that guy's calf, and he's screaming out. That's part of the process, buddy. This is what you earn. Don't ever break Roman laws. This is what happens to you. So don't just hear these words and like, okay, yeah, dizziness, cramp, thirst. Do not discount that one. Starvation, on this list, probably the least one. Sleeplessness, you don't sleep on a cross. Traumatic fever, fever is racing through the body. Tetanus, poison is starting to shoot through the body. Shame, publicity of shame, he splits those. Publicity of shame. Long continuance of torment. Not torment, not continuance of torment. Long continuance of torment. This next one's a big one. Horror of anticipation. I thought about it. There's the horror of anticipation of every stroke of a scourging that goes with the crucifixion. There's the horror of anticipation of having to carry the cross, of that hand being crucified, of that hand, and then of the feet, and then of being dropped in. And then every time your back that's been scourged has to go up and down that. And I'm not just trying to be gory this morning. I just want us to understand this is what Jesus has done for us. Every movement, horror of anticipation, but then I want oxygen. And then lastly, he offers mortification of untended wounds. And he says, all this is intensified, you got to get this, just up to the point at which they can be endured at all. But all stopping just short of the point which would give the sufferer, sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. You don't go unconscious on a cross. It's like really bad, but you don't pass out. You'd love to pass out. Next paragraph he writes, the unnatural position on a cross made every movement painful. Some of you have had back trouble and you're like, 
When that has hit, there is no comfortable position. On a cross, every movement is painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. And while each variety of misery went on somehow gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. And now write this down. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety. We're like, which is it? Is it an excitement internally or an anxiety internally? Both. It causes all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself. He writes, of death, the unknown enemy at whose approach mankind usually shudders most it makes all of that, as death is approaching, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. It's very complicated, very theological, flowery, I guess, way. That's the wrong word. But that's a complicated way of saying, if you were to go up to a crucifixion victim who's been hanging there an hour or two and say, hey, listen, man, if I could help you out, would you just want to take maybe 10, 15 minutes to just get your final thoughts and we're just going to go ahead and let you die? Would you want to die within the next 10 or 15 minutes? You know what they would say? No. I want to die right now. I want to die now. Please don't make me do this 10 more minutes. But don't you, you, this is it, man. Don't you want to kind of think through any like, no, I want to die right now. I want to die now. Maybe even reason with them. But isn't anything in you worried about what's on the other side? What is death really like? His response would be, whatever death is like, whatever's on the other side has to be better than this. I'll take my chances. I want to die right now. I'll take death. Now look down at verse 37. Verse 36 actually is where I'm wanting. Then they, the soldiers, sat down and kept watch over him there. Let me not belabor it. Let's just write it. Why do the soldiers need to sit down? Their job is to ensure that no friends of a crucified person comes and tries to help out. How would a friend help a crucified person? Well, maybe they would try to rescue them, but what else would they do? Put them out of their misery and kill them. Maybe try to rescue. The soldiers are gone. They're probably going to die anyway. They would probably come and say, listen, I hate to do this. And they would beg them, if you love me, please... Stab something in my heart. Please, if you love me, take that rock over that stone over there and crush my skull. If you love me, cut my head off right here. Please, if you care anything about me, put me out of... Their job is to make sure nobody gets to do that. And now verse 37. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So John adds multiple things to what we've been reading. John expands on this and adds some things that Mark, Luke, and Matthew do not. You with me? John tells us that this placard, oh, and by the way, if you put all the Gospels together, here's what we find. The full saying, so not even Matthew, who gives probably the, one of the fullest ones, does not give it all. The full placard would have said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. John tells us that that placard was written in three languages. Aramaic, which would have been the version of Hebrew, the religious language that the Jews spoke. 
It was written in Latin, which would have been the official government language of Rome. So it's written in Aramaic and Latin, and it was written in Greek because that was the cultural language of the day that most people... Bottom line, as anybody by, they're surely going to be able to read one of these three languages, and most would be able to read probably two out of the three. And they're going to see that the sign of that one... Why is he dying? He's a robber and a murderer. That one's a robber and a murderer. Here we have this man is dying because he is, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. We also know from John that the Jews, the Jewish leaders, are very upset about this sign. I don't know if Pilate would be nearby, so I'm assuming they went the half mile or full mile back and told him, we've got a problem with your sign. Yeah, what's the issue? You need to change it. Your sign says that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You need to change it to say, this man said, I am king of the Jews. And here Pilate, who's always just been bending over and bending over, giving them their way, finally has some courage and says, I have written what I have written. And he does not change the placard. You say, Jeff, is that a big deal? Guys, what I'm about to tell you, I'm going to be brief, but it is subtle, but I think it's important. They, the Jewish leaders want it stated that he is dying because he claims to be the king of the Jews. But because Pilate does not change the wording, then the official reason, Jesus, that one's dying for robbery, that one's dying for robbery, but this man officially who has been declared innocent five times, then why is he dying? He's dying because he is the king of the Jews. That's important. Why is that so fitting? Because the Bible predicted over and over that when the king of the Jews, this chosen seed of Abraham, this chosen descendant of David, when he comes, he's going to fulfill all these prophecies. We saw two just in the way they divided the clothing. They're flying. Prophecies are being fulfilled all around. About to hit another one as the last point here in a moment. The point is this. The Old Testament predicts that when the Messiah comes, the Christ, he is going to fulfill all of these things and he will be crucified. So why is Jesus dying on the cross? Here's the reason. Because he really is the king of the Jews. He, if he's not crucified, then we know that Jesus would not have been the king of the Jews. We need to look for another one. But because he's crucified and it was officially stated, he's the, no one else in the history of the world, all those other millions of people, none of them died because they are the king of the Jews. But Jesus died because he is the king of the Jews. And then your last verse is verse 38. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Robbers, do y'all feel that? Okay, watch. This guy's a thief and this guy's a robber. What's the difference? One guy, you say, well, this guy steals too. True, but a thief is probably going to come in the middle of the night when you're asleep and sneak back out, or they're going to come when they know you're away on vacation. That's a thief. A robber is just going to come in and just kill you if they have to and take whatever it is. So these men are given a much stronger title, a much more violent title. If you're taking notes, I have two last thoughts for you this morning. By willfully choosing to die on the cross that, humanly speaking, was initially planned for Barabbas... What Jesus has done, I thought about what's the significance? Why is it always talking about he's between the two? One's on his right, one's on the left. Why is Jesus in the middle? He's in the middle because Jesus is perfectly fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12, which predicted that when the Messiah comes, he will be numbered with transgressors. He, literally, the Lord is so numbered with transgressors, he doesn't just die with them. He doesn't just march through the streets with them. He is literally in his death right in between them. He is so associated with criminals and transgressors, this is how he is dying. 
With that thought in mind, let's finish over at Colossians chapter 2. And then we'll be done. Colossians 2 is where we'll finish as soon as you've written that lengthy note. As you're writing that, before we read Colossians, can I drill one more time into your theology, this thought? Grace View, someone watching online later, guest, visitor of many times. I want you to really, truly digest this and draw it in. So here's my question. Since God is sovereign... He's so sovereign, he not only allows things, but God designs and plans things. Why would God, who loves his one and only son by nature, design it that he comes to earth to die, but to die such a horrible death? Why would God do that? The answer is that God's nature, God has a nature, a divine nature, and his divine nature is holy. Why did he design this for his son and cause it to come about? This was God's plan being fulfilled all along from eternity past. Pointing to verse 35. Why? Because God's nature is holy. And because he's holy, he can't tolerate sin. So if you think, oh, I know I've sinned, but I'll surely get to go to heaven. I haven't done as much as other people. God can't tolerate any sin. The other thing we know about God's nature is that God's nature is just and so because he's just, he cannot not only not tolerate sin, he can't just overlook sin. So his holy nature and his just nature means that he wants you to come live with him in heaven. And to do so, your sin has to be removed to satisfy his holy nature. But he can't just say, all right, sin is gone. Now you get to come to heaven. No, your sin has to be punished to satisfy his just nature. That's why Jesus is going through this. Because it's holy nature and it's just nature, but also he is loving. He loves you so much that he wants you to live with him, and he's done this to make it possible. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse number 13. And you, he's talking to saved people. If you're a Christian this morning, this is what happened in your life. If you're not yet a Christian, this is what has to happen for you to become a Christian and go to heaven. Verse 13. Two Christians, the Bible says, and you who were dead, not physically dead, spiritually dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Do you see the difference? Catch that phrase. And you who were dead, so dead means you're separate, watch, I'm going to make a line right here. Here's a line. This line is the law of God. The laws of God. God is on this side of his laws because he's holy. It is his nature to not go over that law. He tells mankind, do not go over his laws. Do not go over. If you go over, you have transgressed. Verse 13. You who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive. So dead is away from God. Alive, according to verse 13. Alive together with. Alive together with. That's over here. So before you got saved, or if you want to get saved, you're, you're over here. We're living over here in the land of trespasses. 
away from God. But Christ, Jesus, who is perfectly holy, leaves the land of on the right side of God's laws, enters the land of transgressors, takes all our sin upon himself. And so that allows verse number 14, verse 13 at the end. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling. Oh, his holy nature does away with our sin. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Why is that guy dying? Because he's a robber and a murderer, and the legal demand is execution. Same as that one. Why is this one dying? Because he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate didn't have the courage to say no to the Jews. But there's another hidden reason why Jesus is dying. He's not only dying because he's the king of the Jews. Look at verse number 14. By canceling, so God is able to forgive us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, the trespasses and the debt with its legal demand. God has set aside, how? Nailing it to his cross. Nailing it to the cross. Your last note this morning is this. We know there's this placard over Jesus that says why he's dying. But unseen to human eyes, something else was nailed to the cross. And it's the full record of every sin of all Christians who've ever lived or ever will live. All of our sins and the record and the punishment that goes with it, all of that is nailed. Guys, if just my sins were put on post-it notes, there would be no room left on the cross. Just mine. If just my sins were nailed and written out in 12 font where you could actually read it, my sins alone would cover every part of the cross, and yours would do the same. And layers and layers, and just us, layers and layers. But all the sins of the whole world, and all the whole world who's ever lived, and all those who ever will live, you now begin to see there's this massive weight that is on the cross. He's not being held there by three pieces of metal. He's being held there by the omnipotent power and love of God as he's paying for our sins, so that God can forgive us. And that's what happened at the cross. So here's the last thought. Listen. Full forgiveness is available. It's been made possible at the cross. Full forgiveness is possible at the cross. But it has to, you understand, everybody, all, we sang about it. Full forgiveness is made possible at the cross, but it has to be retrieved by personal faith. There has to come a point in your life, you say, oh, forgiveness is available at the cross of Christ. Yes, but to actually have it, not everybody has it. It's possible, it's available. What he did is sufficient for the whole world. But to actually have it, you as an individual in a time, in a moment of time, have to have a point where you meet with God at the cross and you agree with God. You have to change your mind as you were born in this world. You have to stop thinking my sin's not that bad and Lord, I do all these pretty good things and surely you're going to take note of my good and it's going to outweigh my bad. You better change your mind about that and you better change your mind about what you think about Jesus and come to this conclusion. What we read today in verse 35 and what's coming next week was enough and it is sufficient to pay for all my sins and I actually want it. God, I am taking you up. I'm confessing. I need this. I'm a sinner. I am taking that at this moment. Was that the second song we sang this morning? 
that it's available and I'm going to take it. I forget the wording. I don't know if I've heard that one before. My daughter will tell, tell me afterward. We've sung it five times, but I don't remember singing it five times. Have we done it? It was a new song. Oh, it actually was a new one. I'm right this time. Have you ever done that? You ever been to the cross? You ever met God there? Have you ever confessed your sins? Have you ever come to the conclusion, God, I need it, and I do believe you, and I'm taking it, and I have it, and I can never lose it. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I firmly believe that in the life of a Christian and those who will become a Christian, nothing happens by chance. If you're already Christian, or if you need to become one, can I ask you this? You're here this morning, came this morning. Why did God bring you here today? Think about that. Talk to the Lord. Lord, what do you want to say to me from this? If you're Christian, maybe it's as simple as this. God, you have reminded me how much you hate my sin and how much you love me. And that ought to drive you as Christians right now to just say, God, thank you for giving your son. And Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your life. You went through all of that for us. You left life with the Father and you came across to our side over in the land of transgressions. And you took all our transgressions and put them on your cross and you bore the weight of that and all the wrath of God against all of our sins so that we can come back on the right side of God's law and have the life that Christ had when he first left heaven. Lord, thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you for that. What did God want to show you this morning? Maybe you're a Christian this morning and here's the fact. There's something in your life that God wants you to feel and you've been masking it and covering it up artificially, sinfully even. Is there anything in your life you're like, man, I've been burying it with busyness and with my eating and with my unnecessary spending and with my alcohol and my drugs and I run to that pill or to that thing that I smoke or I put in my arm or whatever it may be. I've been running to that. Instead of just saying, God, I need to talk to you about this pain in my life that you're wanting me to feel. If that's the case, I invite you to do that this morning and in the coming hours and days. But knowing that nothing happens by chance. If there's one person here this morning or that watches this and you've come to the conclusion. I've never trusted Jesus as my Savior. But this morning I realize what he did because he is God. And God makes the rules that what Jesus did is sufficient. His blood is enough to wash away my sins, as bad as they are. And I want to be saved from that. If God hates sin so much that he would do this to his only son, then what would he do to me if I reject Christ? Hell must be real, and it is eternal. And I don't want to go there. And Again, maybe this is you this morning. I I hope it is. If you've never become a Christian, I hope that your attitude is this. Jesus, you have won me. You have won me with your love. If you are doing that, then you must mean it when you say, you will save whoever will call on your name. And so if that's you this morning, I invite you right now, just before I pray, will you not just talk to God? He's a real person. He knows your very thoughts. You don't even have to pray out loud. Just talk to him.
and confess your sins. Lord, I am a sinner. God, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Tell him, God, I need a Savior. I'm in desperate need of a Savior. But then tell him this, God, thank you for letting me hear what Jesus has done for me. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for letting me. Thank you for sending your Son. And don't stop there. This is the key. Tell him, God, I believe Jesus' death was for me. Tell him that. I, God, I believe you. Jesus' death was for me, and it was enough to pay for my sins. All of them. And then go the whole way. Tell the Lord. Talk to God right now. God, I right now receive the free gift of forgiveness through Jesus' cross. Tell him, God, I receive your forgiveness through the cross. Let's all stand this morning. Father, Father, you know this is way over my head. What an important passage. Lord, would you let us meditate on this and live in the power of this? Father, will you let us come back next week if it be in your grace and see the rest of the story of the six hours of Christ on the cross? the greatest story that's ever been told. May we learn it. May we love it. May we live in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.